so I want to just start by reflecting a little more on what just happened because um, we just baptized these three little children, these little image bearers. Um, God made them in his image, and um, he has now marked them with his name. So when I said, you know, I baptize you into the name, for the, uh, for the Hebrews, that was basically a, a synonym for God. They didn't want to pronounce God's actual name because it was too holy. So they didn't call God Yahweh a lot of times. They would just call him the name. Hashadim in Hebrew is the, just the name. And so when we say, I baptize you into the name, that's like putting the stamp of God on these children. And um, in one sense, it's, a, it's, a, it's cute and funny and beautiful. And it, it acknowledges the... Um, the glory of a child, it does all that. But in another sense, it's also part of this battle plan. And so it's um, almost got a violent aspect to it. Because you're enlisting these, these children into um, this kingdom that Jesus came to build that was here to undermine and to um, ultimately destroy the empires, all the empires of the world, as we're going to see as we go through this passage. So Jesus takes these disciples just 11 of them up on this mountain and says i'm going to take you 11 and i am going to essentially um have this end game where i will take over the world and i don't know if you've ever um seen the the cartoon with the two little mice pinky in the brain i don't know if you've seen that but um it starts oftentimes where pinky is this big old uh hulking kind of dumb mouse and he says gee brain what do you want to do tonight and then the brain says, same thing we do every night, Pinky, try to take over the world. And um, in their case, it's this giant, elaborate plan they always come up with for total domination and control for their own, for their own sake. Um, and so when I say that Jesus wants to take over the world, it's not like that. It's not that kind of like evil genius mastermind comic book movie take over the world. It's, it's not for control and domination. It's more for the transformation of individual people by teaching everything that Christ taught and um, spreading that through baptizing and teaching. And the goal is to make disciples, not to d- dominate people. And, and disciples are people who freely choose to live uh, the ways of the kingdom of Christ. And so uh, what I want to look at is just this kind of very simple two-part strategy that Jesus sets out here for how you make a disciple. Um, how do you do this? And the first thing he says is baptize them, and we got to see a visual of that. And uh, again, it's physically marking people with a certain brand, like a brand name, almost the way you would brand a cow, um, a brand name like uh, Haynes brand, or um, you know, you would say maybe the, the Milner name, or the Hilton name, or uh, the Wake Forest name. It tells you uh, like something about that. So when you say baptize them into the name, that tells you the character of the mark that is put upon them. So that is forever Luke and Lincoln and Lolly's mark. You know, whether they like it or not, they're, they're now marked as in the name. So you baptize them, and then you also, after, after you baptize them, the order's important there that you first baptize, then you begin to teach them and train them to live out that identity of that name. And so he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And again, it's important that you start with the name, uh, first, uh, then you move to the, uh, the, the plan, um, the way that you actually make the disciples. So um, that's what I'll look at, these two things. So first of all, the, uh, the name. 
um, the, the crucifixion just happened, and um, the disciples all fled, and then the resurrection happened. That was last week, and the disciples were not there to see it. The women were there to see it. And we saw last week that when uh, Jesus came to the women at the tomb, he said to the women, I want you to go to my foolish, uh, wayward, uh, cowardly brothers and tell them um, to meet me in the mountains of Galilee. We saw that last week. And so then the women tell the disciples. The disciples go to that mountain. We don't know where it was, but here we are now in verse 16. And sure enough, Jesus is waiting for his 11 disciples. Judas is gone now committed suicide, but now in verse 16 it says, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, and if you don't know the geography here, Jerusalem is in the south, Galilee is in the north, Galilee is where Jesus came from, he was born in um, Bethlehem, but then moved to Nazareth, and his main place he worked was in Capernaum, so there's these mountains up there, more so than down in the south, Uh, there are higher mountains up there, and on one of those mountains up in the north of Galilee, he said, this is our rendezvous point. This is where I want to meet you. And apparently he had even prepared it. He said, uh, the one that Jesus had directed them to go to. So I picture him at a campfire of some kind that he set up um, in some you know, glen or some kind of cove. And he is uh, waiting for them. He set up chairs, maybe 11 chairs around this campfire. Uh, perhaps he's grilling their favorite fish. We know that... There's one passage in John where he was grilling fish for breakfast for them as they're fishing out in the ocean. So this is uh, Jesus at the campfire, and they're coming up over the hill. And um, as they come into the firelight, I'm sure they, were, they looked very sheepish, kind of creeping into the, the firelight. And then it says in verse 17, when they got there and they saw him, um, they worshipped him, which is kind of a first And a very significant moment in the Gospel of Matthew that really to be a disciple, um, you first have to worship. That's that's kind of the essence of it. Is that you're treating this man, Jesus, as God and you're worshiping him. And you're bowing down to him. It's an incredible thing to say that these Jewish, monotheistic, uh, well-trained young men, these 11 disciples, they were worshiping a man. But then it also says... And this is really helpful to me that, that they doubted at the same time. You see that they wor- worshipped and doubted. How often do you think of those two words in the same phrase? That maybe you're here right now and you're worshipping, but you're also doubting? Apparently it's possible to do both. That Matthew was so honest that when he wrote his gospel, he said, Yeah, I was there, I was one of the eleven, and frankly, I had my doubts. And um, it's one of those things about the Gospels, and if you're skeptical about the Gospels and you're here tonight, uh, I'm so glad you came. And um, you have reason to be skeptical. They're very old documents. Um, It's very hard to know if these things really happened or not. There's miraculous things that happen, so, you know, you've got good reason to be skeptical. But one reason not to be skeptical is because of these very vulnerable moments in the Gospels, where they're clearly not just written as propaganda. They're not the way that... Um, You know, they always say winners write history. Well, when winners write history, they don't put in details like some of them doubted. And it helps me to trust the Gospels to see a phrase like that in there. And not only does it help me to trust the Gospels, it helps me to to not believe that I'm lost or that um, I'm not a Christian or I'm a non-believer. Because because I love the fact that um, these people saw the risen Christ and worshipped him and they doubted. 
And so that makes me feel like, well, I can also be here and worship and the uh, silent confession period is happening and my mind is wandering and I'm doubting during the singing of the songs and, and still I can be a disciple because they were that way. That you can worship and doubt at the same time. I mean, the word worship is literally to um, prostrate yourself. And in some traditions, uh, some Christian traditions, uh, certainly among Muslims, one of the most important things is to get down on your knees and put your hands on the ground and bow your head. And it would do us good to do some of that. Maybe not in here, but certainly, um, you know, when you're by yourself, um, to do that is the, the actual posture really helps you to worship. And so that's what was going on here. You've got these 11 people that are literally prostrating themselves before, again, before human. This is a human that they're prostrating themselves before. And if you don't understand how amazing that is, let me read Revelation 22.8, the last letter of the Bible. This is now John. So this is the same John that's at the campfire. This is many years later, and he's writing a letter, and he's on the island of Patmos, and he sees an angel. And it says, when I saw the angel, I fell down to worship at his feet. I mean, angels must be very majestic. And when you see an angel, I imagine your first instinct is to worship them. But the angel shouted, don't do that. Stop doing that. I am a fellow servant of God with you. Worship him only. The angel is horrified when John begins to prostrate himself before the angel. But look at the difference with Jesus. Jesus doesn't stop them at all. He encourages it. He takes it. He's like, bring it on. This is who I am. I am the very God as the Father and the Spirit. I am one of the three persons of the Trinity. In this passage, he quotes Daniel 7. He likes to talk about Daniel 7 a lot in his ministry, actually. And uh, this is from the prophet Daniel, 400 years written, 400 years before these events. And the the Jewish prophet Daniel has a vision in in the 7th chapter where he sees uh, these four horrible empires. These devastating, crushing, uh, thrashing empires. And they're each represented by an animal. So he sees a lion, and that represents Babylon. Then he sees a bear, which represents the next empire to come after Babylon, Persia. And he's all seeing this as a prophecy. He sees a leopard, which is probably Greece. And then he sees a dragon, uh, which was Rome. So he has this one vision. He sees all these violent, brutal, like they're brutes, animalistic, these empires thrashing around. But then in the middle of that vision, he sees a human come on the scene, riding on the clouds. And uh, the contrast is this humane king versus all of these rabid emperors. And this is what it says in Daniel 7.13. And I want you to think about Jesus growing up reading this very important Jewish prophecy. Um, This is from Daniel. Now, Daniel says, I, Daniel, saw a person like the Son of Man. This is capital T, capital S, capital M, the Son of Man. That's one of Jesus' favorite expressions for himself. So he's co-opting that from the prophet Daniel. So if anybody ever tells you that in the Gospels Jesus never claimed to be God, he did it frequently. I, Daniel, saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom such that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
Daniel wrote that when Israel was tiny, uh, being persecuted by the Babylonians. They were in exile. They were nothing. And yet Daniel's saying there's going to be a day coming when a a king from our people uh, rises up, crushes the empires, and rules the world. And if you look at verse 18, uh, look at what he says there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Has been given to me already now. Now there are times in the Gospels where he talks about how in the future the Son of Man is going to have all authority. Um, In the future he's going to come on the clouds. But now he's actually describing it as a settled fact. It has been given to me. And so there he is, Jesus, standing before them and saying, I have all authority. And not only on earth, um, Satan offered him that in the temptations. If you bow to me, Satan says, I will give you authority over all the kingdoms. But now this is not just over the earth. This is also the authority in heaven, in the heavenly realms, which means the, uh, the unseen realm, the realm of angels and demons and whatever else is out there. That, that Jesus is saying here, I have authority over the visible emperors, kings, presidents, what have you. And I have authority over all the invisible rulers, which are more powerful than the visible ones. And so I think it's just really important to, um, to realize here that um, underneath whatever anxieties you might have, um, whatever fears you have about the future, and uh, who is really in control of this planet... Uh, just if you are a, a Christian, you've got to let that statement uh, get underneath your anxiety and your terror and your worries about the future. That Jesus is saying here, I hold all sway over death and over hell and over demons and over Satan. I, I hold the keys. Um, somebody was telling me uh, on Friday that in... Uh, the Infinity Wars, the Avenger, uh, I haven't seen that one, the Avengers Infinity Wars, that there's a, uh, there's a person named Thanos, I think probably from the Greek word uh, for death. I guess he's a person who likes death, but he gets a hold of the Reality Stone, something like that, and the Infinity Stones, and then he has all power. He can do anything. And, um, and so uh, that would be what uh, Paul is talking about in Philippians 2.9. God, highly exalted Jesus, bestowed on him the name above every name. He is now, he used to not be above them all, but now he has risen above every <clears throat> name you could put out there. Colossians 2.10, he is the head over all rule and authority. First uh, Peter 3.22, all angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign Forever, And so <clears throat> this is, I think, the necessary precondition uh, for all discipleship is this idea that you worship one who has all authority in heaven and earth over all uh, empires, presidents, dictators, judges, police. If you have any fear of uh, any army, he has total authority over all those things. He has authority over death which would include diseases and uh, fatal accidents, terrorism. He has authority over all those things. He has authority over all sin and all your guilt and your shame and your addictions, whatever you've done. Uh, He has the final say on that. He's the only one that could ever condemn, and he says, I don't condemn. He has authority over all demonic thoughts. 
intrusive thoughts, anxiety, uh, pornographic images, self-harm, everything that's demonic and dark and horrible, as terrible as those things are, he says, I have authority over all those things. Heaven and earth, everything. And I love that uh, statement we read in the bulletin, um, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. I don't belong to myself, but I belong in life and in death, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has delivered me from the power of death and the power of Satan. And um, that's what we need to cling to, the one who has all authority. He's so bold about it that he actually puts himself into the heart of God. It's an incredible statement that he forever redefines divine reality. Look at verse 19. Baptize them in the name, and this is again Hashadim, right, in Hebrew. The name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, He puts himself in that threesome. Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, um, people criticize uh, Donald Trump for his grandiose statements. Uh, I've wrote down a few. Sorry, losers, but my IQ is one of the highest, and you know it. (laughs) When I'm president, we'll all be saying Merry Christmas again, like they didn't until him. And then I will give you everything you've been looking for for 50 years, and I'm the only one. And I would admit those are bold, grandiose statements, but it's really important to know that... uh, Jesus said something like way beyond anything Donald Trump ever said, uh, which is that you should baptize all nations into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's including himself in that threesome. And as far as I know, there's no statement up to this point that had ever been made where you would describe the, the divine reality as having three persons in it. This had never been thought of before. And here we have one of those three persons coming and telling us This is the essence of reality. There's one God. You already knew that because you were Jewish. But now I'm telling you that within that one God, I'm there. And the Father is there. But there's also this other one called the Holy Spirit. So for the first time, the most important complex idea ever has been revealed to the planet. On this little mountain, little campfire, uh, you know, quantum mechanics or partial differential equations or general relativity or whatever kind of... Amazing thoughts people have had are completely um, nothing. They are dwarfed by this idea of one God and three persons. And it's um, incredibly hopeful and relaxing to my soul to say that final reality, that all authority, all authority is actually one God, three persons, sacrificing for each other, loving each other. It's not like just one... uh, Dictator who was calling all the shots. Um, it's not a pair of evil masterminds. It's, it's three self-sacrificing, other-glorifying persons. That is the essence of reality. And Jesus has now revealed that to us. So if you're someone who has a problem with authority, and a lot of us do, uh, especially with male authority, maybe with a father figure, it's uh, incredibly, incredibly healing to know that... Um, the, the real authority is this. This is the one. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that that's the name we get baptized into. And the power of baptism, I can assure you, is not in me. It's, uh, it's not even in the water. It's not in the formula. 
The, the power of baptism is in the name. It's the, it's the person behind all this. It's the one uh, who just owned these three children as his. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is one reason that we don't rebaptize, because if you're rebaptizing, you're saying that the power was actually in the person's faith, or it was in the elements, or it was in the pastor. But no, even if your baptism you know, seemed kind of weak or something like that, it was like a terrible pastor in a terrible way, uh, you don't need to do it again because it was done in the power of the name. He was there. However kooky or crazy it was, he was there, and he is the one that claimed you as his. So that's, that's the first point, is that for the, uh, the, the plan that Jesus has, um, for that plan to work, it starts with a person. The plan is completely ridiculous without the person. The plan is senseless. But with the person, it is a complete lock. It's because of your confidence in that person and that name that the plan could ever happen. Uh, If you've ever seen Ocean's Eleven, it's a crazy plan that George Clooney has. But when you meet him and you know who he is and uh, the way he operates, you realize he can pull this off because I trust in him. Because he's like that. He knows how to operate. And uh, there's no one who knows how to operate and knows the ways of the world more than Jesus. He invented the world. And so as crazy as the plan is to take over the world, he's the one doing it. So he's going to make it happen. And he's making it happen. I mean, he's done a really good job so far. There are billions of Christians in every nation in the world. And uh, if you had been betting on him back then at that mountaintop, you would have said, this is not going to work out. Uh, the, the chances of Rome being around in 2,000 years are a lot better than the chances of Jesus being around in 2,000 years. But look what's happened. Exactly the opposite. Nobody even knows the name of the emperor who was ruling at that time. So, verse 19 says, uh, Go, <clears throat> therefore, again, so important, therefore, because I have all authority, because you worship me, because I'm God, for that reason, go and make disciples of all nations. So that's the plan. And there are um, three misconceptions about this. So you may have heard this called the Great Commission. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's often called the Great Commission. That phrase had not been used uh, in Christendom until 1822 by Hudson Taylor, who was a Baptist missionary who was really pushing the uh, foreign missions movement, which is a great thing. Okay, it's a wonderful thing what he did. But he turned this into this thing called the Great Commission where it's all about overseas ministry. So if you grew up Baptist uh, or evangelical, you probably heard this as, this is why we go overseas. Um, But a a few things about that. First of all, I would say that's very important. So don't hear me saying anything negative about foreign missions. But I would say that if it's only about foreign missions, then we're all doing nothing right now. Um, Or maybe just supporting them. But that's not, it's not just about foreign missions. He actually doesn't say go. That is not the right... It's not an imperative. It's a participle. So it's going. It's as you go along your way, as you live your life, do these things. So it doesn't, you don't have to go to Kazakhstan or Beijing or something. You're, you can do that in your apartment, your house, your job. Going As you go along the way, make disciples. He doesn't say evangelize all nations. He says make disciples of all nations. Evangelism is one part of that. But the majority of that is discipling, which is teaching people to do all he commanded. And again, the last one is, uh, it doesn't so much say nations as, uh, in Greek, it's ethne, ethnic group. Which could be as small as like uh, 
a clan, like the Milner clan, or you know whatever your uh, your clan is. It could be a large family system. So um, again, don't think about like Brazilians or Koreans. Um, it's more like some little group of people. Um, he's saying so again. It doesn't have to be somewhere else. It can be a clan. Go. Going your way, make disciples of all the people groups you meet, all the different clusters of peoples. Um, I think they could even apply like, to the arts community of Winston-Salem or something like that, or the academic community of Greensboro, something like that. But it's how we live our daily lives with every single relationship am- among us, with your neighbors, your family, your coworkers, your roommates, um, people you play games with. Uh, people you play frisbee with, people you go out to bars with, people you dance with. Going amongst all these people, make disciples of all these groups. And uh, not separating from them, not avoiding them. That would be completely opposed to what he says here. But, um, but definitely living differently. Because you've got to do all the things he's commanded, which is going to be very countercultural, very counter-empire. And notice here the phrase, um, the age. Verse 20, I will be with you to the end of the age. It doesn't just mean to the end of time. Um, it, it does mean that also, but really the age is a, a more important than just time. The age is the new age that he started that uh, Paul talks a lot about in the letters. That when Christ rose from the grave and defeated all the powers and had all authority, a new age began. Not the old age, but this age when the empires essentially fell. So kind of like think the fall of Rome. When the fall of Rome happened, then the Middle Ages began. And so when the fall of the empire, the domain of darkness like Mordor, when that fell, then you had this entire new era begin. And so once Jesus was inaugurated, you started a whole new age. And so he's saying that um, I'm going to be ruling that entire age, that eon, that whole period. And um, I think one part of this that's important is that during this age, he's saying, I am going to be changing everything about the age. So if, uh, if, if it's the age of the empire, I'm going to be bringing a kingdom into that age. It's a, it's a, it's a whole new system, in other words. And this, again, this, um, this kind of transcends the often individualistic way that we see the Great Commission, where it's about like an individual's... Uh, piety or spirituality. There is an element of the Great Commission that uh, has something to say about systemic evil. And so um, there's a guy named Anthony Bradley who wrote a great article called uh, The Great Commission or Cosmic Redemption. And what Anthony Bradley says uh, is that it should really be more like this is, the, this is cosmic redemption Christianity as opposed to just the Great Commission. Because Bradley says that Jesus is attacking what he calls the parasite kingdom. Uh, I think the word should have been used as empire. But he calls it the parasite kingdom. And uh, he says a, uh, the systemic evil of divorce, child abuse, genocide, sex trafficking, all these things are part of the Great Commission. All oppressive social structures, uh, pornography, uh, sexual abuse, abortion, racism, generational poverty, gun violence... So participating in the subversion of the parasite kingdom is part of the Great Commission, as we call it. Uh, It's teaching them to observe everything I commanded, verse 20. 
And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, what he commanded is very, very countercultural. Uh, it's very subversive. For instance, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are people who mourn. We don't think of those things as blessed. Blessed are the meek, the hungering, the merciful, the reconcilers. And so when he says, teach them to observe everything, he's saying, um, I want you to be stingy with your body and generous with your money. I want you to, to not kind of climb the pyramid, the, the, the corporate ladder, but to, to drop to the bottom of the funnel. And instead of getting a, above people and competing with people, go to the bottom, uh, slide down the funnel to the very bottom. Uh, teaching them everything I commanded means being anti-anxiety. Where Jesus says, uh, if you're really anxious, I want you to look at the birds and the sparrows and the lilies and the daffodils and just meditate on the fact that if God cares so well for them, uh, how much more well is he going to care for you? Who are of much more value to him than they. The, uh, the empire is anti-hypocrisy, where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus constantly attacks praying, uh, giving, uh, all these outward exercises of Religion that are hypocritical and that are two-faced. So uh, teaching them everything I've commanded you is very, very subversive to just kind of uh, nominal religion. It's anti-revenge and a culture of deep, deep revenge. I mean, America is a very, very vengeful. The Avengers is the, a movie that makes massive amounts of money, partly because we just love revenge so much. And Jesus says... Uh, if you treat people that like you really well, that's of no credit to you. Love your enemies. Love the people who persecute you. Uh, love the people who hate you. Don't get revenge on them. It's also anti-judgment. His ways. Teach them everything I commanded includes, um, before you criticize someone, get the log out of your own eye. Before you take a speck, this little tiny thing they've done wrong, first get the log out of your own eye that, where you can't even see clearly to, criti- to criticize them. I uh, read a book recently called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It's an interesting title. Um, the Patient Ferment of the Early Church. My friend told me to read that. And I'm going to read a, a summary from a book review by Brian Lifton, the Gospel Coalition book review. And this is what he says. He says, uh, in The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, the author highlights the counter-imperial thrust of Christ's message. It's basically a story of the early Christian church. The early Christians embraced a communal model of love, mercy, peace, and humility that ran counter to Rome's swaggering braggadocio and ruthless domination. And he says that um, the main reason the early church grew was because it was so different from the culture. The most important growth catalyst for the early Christians was patience. In their business dealings, their sexual morality, their openness to women and children, in their manifestations of care for the poor and the ethics of tolerance, the first believers created a comprehensive culture of patience. And so this is the way that Christ says, I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to baptize all these little people and these big people, um, and then I'm going to teach them to live a different way in a counter empire way. In the new age, it's going to be a new age where the old age starts to get dismantled and the old structure is dismantled. And we're called to be part of that. By being baptized, by being a disciple, that's what we're doing. And 
preaching the gospel and evangelizing and showing hospitality, but primarily you're making disciples, you're teaching them, you're baptizing them. And that's the, that's the only confidence that we could ever have that this crazy plan is going to work, is that Jesus said it. At a recent uh, joint servant leader session meeting, we have these a few times a year where the servant leaders and the elders all meet together. So we were talking about my sabbatical. We were talking about how Salem would deal with uh, me being gone. And we were going through all the different things to divvy up to different people and do all these things. And um, one of the elders, I was very grateful for him, he stood up and uh, he said, just in case anyone's concerned, uh, I love you, Ben, but the church is not built upon you. And um, I could just feel like a huge sigh of relief when he said, uh, let's just remember that it's built on the rock of Christ. And that uh, all authority in heaven on earth has not been given to Ben or to any pastor or even to the elders or the servant leaders, but all authority is only in the hands of one person and he's the one that loves the church. He's the one that cares about far more than I do. He cares about the church and loves the church. And if we even thought it was 1% about us, uh, it would be completely ridiculous. It would be a joke. I mean, imagine if the disciples were behind the plan. And I know that some people think, think they were behind the plan. So if you're a skeptic, maybe you think um, disciples were kind of gathered around a campfire. And John was like, gee, Peter, what do you want to do tonight? And Peter was like, same thing we do every night, John. Let's take over the world. And Thomas was like, well, first we've got to steal the body. Because he was killed. So we're going to steal the body. We're going to say he was resurrected. And then Matthew's like, yeah, let's make up a bunch of stories about him. I'll write that down. And then Andrew's like, actually, while we're at it, let's go ahead and say that he was God. And let's say that God has three persons. It's kind of cool. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. And then Philip might have said, and why don't we start baptizing people? Like, we'll put water uh, and we'll dump it on them. And then we'll say, like, they are part of this group. And then James is like, and then we can start giving people bread and wine. And we'll make them think that... um, that that's like Jesus being with us. I mean, if, if humans tried to construct this thing, uh, it would have completely failed. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It's a terrible battle plan. I, um, I think you could tell from my statements earlier, I've not seen any of the Avengers movies. But I can guess from the title um, that uh, this last one has something to do with the, the, end, the end game. Uh, it's called... It's made over a billion dollars. First movie to ever do that in its first weekend. So I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. I have not seen it. But uh, that's what I'm guessing that it's about. And um, yesterday I heard a preacher say that in the Infinity Wars, which is the prequel, um, they're talking about the end. And apparently there's a Doctor Strange character and there's Iron Man, Tony Stark. So they're having a dialogue. Um, this is kind of a stretch for me, but uh, I think I know who these two characters are. It's a fascinating conversation they have where Tony Stark is asking Doctor Strange about all the different future scenarios that could happen. Because Doctor Strange can kind of go in the future and map out all these possibilities. And so uh, Tony Stark is like, tell me what, what you see. And, and Doctor Strange is kind of levitating and he says, uh, there are 14 million possible ways this could all work out. And Tony Spark says, okay, and in how many of those do we win? And Dr. Strange says, one. And I was thinking, 
you know, really, in our case, the odds are worse. Like, it, it would, if you were betting, if Dr. Strange were at that campfire and trying to figure out what are the odds that this plan works, it would be like zero. There is zero chance that the end game of this will be Christ ruling the world. Um, but that's what we believe. People ask me sometimes if I'm concerned that um, during the sabbatical, uh, things are going to go wrong. Am I worried about sabbatical? Um, and I, I just laugh and say, no, not at all. Um, because I trust, trust Austin. I trust the elders. I trust the servant leaders. I trust you. Um, but much more importantly, uh, the fact is that every single week, he's going to be here uh, amongst us. And that, that he is the only one who has authority, the one that serves at this table. And that really the essence of our coming to worship is bowing down to him at, this, at his table that he sets for us. And, um, and so we, we do this every week just to remember his presence is so thick among us. That really the most intimate moment of every week uh, should be meeting the Lord at his table. Like, if you're dating someone or married, um, you know, what's the main thing you would do to establish intimacy? Uh, you'd say, let's go on a date. What are you going to do? Let's, let's go to a batting cage. Or No, you, you don't say that. You don't say, like, let's go wrestle or let's go play uh, Monopoly. You say, let's go and eat. Let's have a meal together. And so the way that Christ establishes um, intimacy with us is by serving us a meal. And uh, he welcomes everyone to this table. Uh, the whole point of the Great Commission is that all, he wants all to come. So there's a total invitation to everyone. But also he says, if you're not, you know, really trusting that, that I am here, I don't want you to fake it or act like you believe something that you don't really believe in. And so if you're here and you're really not sure whether to partake in this because you don't you don't know if you believe or not, I would say don't feel uh, compelled by any human opinion. Don't let um, peer pressure push you up here. Only do this if you really believe uh, that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. If you worship Christ, that's the, only, that's the only thing you need. You don't need to be Presbyterian. don't need to be a member of this church. You don't need to be Protestant. But um, if there is, you certainly don't need to be sinless because then no one can take it. This is a table of sinful people coming to meet their Lord who laid down his life for them and loves them. And so on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he said, this is my blood.